Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talks podcast. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Imagine having experienced mentors with decades of wisdom delivered right to your ears. We talk about purpose, influence, love, sex, habits, success, and so much more. Don't forget to leave us a review, subscribe, and join the thousands of other changemakers in our community on Facebook or go to www.mantalks.com. Today, I have an incredible, incredible guest with me. His name is James Swanick. Now, some of you may have seen him. He's a motivational coach. He's a speaker. He's an investor. He's also a former ESPN anchor on SportsCenter, uh, which is big in Canada and Australia because he's Australian. He's also the author of Insider Journalism Secrets, which teaches people how to interview and make money. He's also founded the 30-Day No Alcohol Challenge, which helps people take 30 days off of drinking alcohol to find their peak performance and evaluate their relationship with drinking alcohol, along with its effects on the human body. He's also the co-founder of Swanee's Blue Blocking Glasses, which helps people get better sleep by preventing damaging blue rays from disrupting their nightly rest and look good while doing it. <laughs> I feel like that was an infomercial there just for you. Uh, so, so James has actually had an incredible, incredible time of interviewing world leaders and celebrities, including Al Gore, Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie, and Hugh Hefner, along with some New York Times bestselling authors, including John Gray and Keith Ferrazzi, who we talk about actually at the end of the podcast. Uh, he's also the host of the James Swanick podcast, where he interviews peak performers, you know, whether it's pro athletes and business owners, fitness professionals, uh, and basically talks about how to live in a peak state and get the best results possible. So on this podcast episode, we dive into a few different things. We talk about some uh, some daily habits, how to build those daily habits. We talk about uh, the 30-day no alcohol challenge, the results you can expect out of it, how to go about it. Uh, we touch a little bit on how to improve your sleep uh, and, and, and why you should shut your technology off at night at least an hour before bed. And uh, we talk about some of James' lessons along the way through his interviews with some of these incredible people. So without further delay, James Swanwick. All right, James, welcome to the Man Talks podcast. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you for having me, Connor. Wonderful. So I'm going to start off like I usually start off. This is a great way that we that we like to rock here on the Man Talks podcast, which is by asking the question and hopefully eliciting a bit of a story from you. So can you tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today? Yeah, you know, in about 2011, I fell in love with this beautiful Colombian woman and she broke up with me, broke my heart. And uh, for about eight months, I was in this depressive cycle where I would walk through the streets of New York with my shoulders slumped forward going, why, why? I don't understand. We're perfect together. And I really was quite a miserable mess for about, for about eight months. And finally, just because I couldn't, you know, 
get out of that depression. Finally, I found the way to get out. A friend of mine told me I should read a book called um, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. And it kind of rewired my brain around understanding this idea that there is no good and there is no bad in the world. There is only what is. But thinking makes it good and thinking makes it bad. And that's a whole nother podcast episode we could go into. But but that whole experience really set me upon a path of, I guess you could say, self-development. I started reading a lot of books. I started learning. I started learning about my own ego and my own personality and my own emotions. And then fast forward to today, I read a book a day and, you know, I, I just try to digest as much information and knowledge um, from books uh, as I can. Nice. Nice. So that, that sort of a uh, little bit of a destructive phase kind of helps help set you on the path that you're on today. There are a few triggers, you know, there are a few things that happened over my life that set me on this path, but I think that's probably... It's going from like being eight months of depressed over over with a broken heart to actually coming out of it, I think that's probably what one of the more more notable defining moments of my life. Mm. It's interesting, man, because you know I think that a lot of the guys out there and and for the women that can that are listening in, I think that it's one of those things that's definitely relatable. And I'm curious, was that the first time that you had been broken up with? No, it wasn't actually. I, I don't want to paint a picture that I'm just the guy that gets dumped all the time. <laughs> but I, I actually, uh, I, I went through a kind of a similar experience when I lived in London. I lived in London from 1999 to 2003. And I'm from Brisbane, Australia, but I was living in London at, at that time. And uh, yeah, I was in a relationship with a, with a British woman and, and she broke up with me. And that was really the trigger for me quitting the UK and heading over to America, to Los Angeles, where I've lived ever since for the past, uh, you know, 16, 16 years. So thank you very much to that wonderful woman, because without her dumping me, I probably wouldn't have tried to escape and move to the wonderful country of the United States where I now live. Nice, man. Yeah. I mean, I think that oftentimes breakups can be the, the catalyst, you know, especially if we're in a relationship that we kind of get comfortable in, or that's not necessarily healthy for us, or it's codependent. Sometimes those breakups can be the proverbial kick in the ass that we need to create the actual change in their life that we're looking for. So I appreciate you sharing that. Thank you. So you grew up in, in Brisbane, Australia. And I'm, I'm curious because it sounds like you've moved a little bit. You, you, you grew up in Australia. You spent some time in London. What made the shift? Because the other interesting thing is that I don't know if you know many guys know about this, but you were educated at the Anglican Church Grammar School. What was that experience like? Yeah, well, it's um, it's in Brisbane, Australia, on the east coast, and uh, they call it Churchy. That's the name of the book. It's a, it's a, a private school here. So pri private and public mean a couple of different things depending on which country you're in. So I'll explain. Private school that means that my parents paid for me to go to that school. I wore a school uniform. It was an all boys school, and you know I was very fortunate to go there. My parents, you know, didn't make a lot of money. My dad was a uh, had a a modest veterinarian practice. My mother was, you know, working part-time while raising me and my two younger boys. So it was a big deal for them to send me there. What was the experience like? It was great. It taught me friendship. I'm still friends with, with, with at least uh, three or four of the guys that I went there. I, I wouldn't say that I was overly religious. I'm not overly religious now, Connor. So while it gave me a kind of like a religious education, it didn't really define me. It wasn't really who, it wasn't like the be all and end all. In fact, you know, since I've left school, I would say that, you know, religion only plays a very minor part in my life 
in my life now. So if your question is around like the, the religious component of it, I don't think it was a significant impact in my life. If your question is, you know, what was it like to go to an to an all boys school and get a private education? I'm I feel in, you know eternally blessed to my parents for giving me that that opportunity. It wasn't easy for them to send me there. In fact, my two younger brothers didn't go to that school. They were they they were sent to a to a different school which didn't have which where you didn't have to pay because you know we just couldn't afford it. So, you know, I feel very fortunate to have, to have had that opportunity. Yeah, I was curious about the all boys part because I think. You know, it's a piece that not many people get to experience anymore of going to an all boys or all girls school. And I was curious about the, you know, the mentorship that happens there and the type of relationships that you build in that type of environment. And, you know, maybe like the lesson that you got out of being in that type of environment. Yeah, well, uh, certainly at the school I went to, Churchy, which is a, you know, a private school here in Australia, that they really do push the old school tie. And what that means is that when you leave high school, um, you know, it's kind of like when you when you you come across former schoolmates in work situations or business opportunities, you really do give preference to the people that you went to school with. You know, like it's and a lot of actually a lot of of uh, women actually complain about it because they always complain about like the old school tie, like, you know, women who are trying to get job opportunities or work opportunities, uh, uh, you know, come second. If someone else who might be, you know, less capable went to the same school as you, if you're the hirer. So there really was that, it, the idea of like, you're a group of men, you're a community, you're always going to go and help one another after you leave school. That was very heavily promoted. And it's alive and kicking today. I mean, you, and, it, and it's a great thing, I think, uh, even though some people complain complain about it, that you might, you know, we might get favours above other people. But it is a great thing. Like, you know, I'm 41. I graduated high school in 1992, so 25 years ago. And I, you know, I, I run into people on occasion that I went to high school with now. And it's just the level of trust the level of affection, the level of, of mateship, which is a very Australian world word, is so strong, even if I haven't seen that person for 25 years or even if that person bullied me in high school 25 years ago. Like, it's, it's incredible, you know, like 25 years later, you come across someone who you didn't really get along with at school. Now you're best mates, you know, now that you really, you really look after each other. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's something that a lot of guys – in North American culture struggle with. They might find it in like fraternities and whatnot, but even then those types of connections are often built and, and bred around drinking and partying and sort of like these maybe not so great behaviors, but it sounds like when you grow up together from that very young age, like I, I have two very close friends that I've you know grown up with since I was probably about five. So it's interesting to hear you still have those dynamics um, in your life where you, you have those relationships that are still very close and very connected. I'll give you two quick examples, actually. There was a guy that I went to high school with who was a real pain in the ass, and he was like the you know one of the cool kids, and he actually did bully me a little bit. Not like I, you know, I, I wasn't bullied per se, but this person gave me some verbal bullying, I guess you could say. And, I, and, and for 10 years after I left high school, I hated this guy. I was like, this guy, I never want to see that guy again. And then I was in LA 10 years later and my father messaged me and said, Hey, James, you know, this gentleman that you went to high school with, his father told me that he's in LA at the moment and he wants to reach out to you. And I was like, I don't want to talk to that 
that guy. Anyway, I reluctantly did go and meet him, and it was just completely night and day. The guy was so nice. He was so friendly. The conversation of bullying never came up. He was really interested in my life, and we, we ended up creating this great friendship, and I've seen him many times over the years. So it just goes to show that if, you, might, you may have had an enemy in high school, but years later it's, it's pretty much, you know, it, it can be all forgotten and you can move on. Nice. Yeah, I appreciate that insight because I think that a lot of people hold on to those past images, right, of who those people were, and then, you know, they, they miss out on the opportunity to connect with somebody who could support them in their current life. Yes. So why did you move to London? I'm curious about that. That seems like a very off-the-track off uh, progression. Well, in Australia, if you're, if you're under the age of 23 uh, and over the age of, I think it's 19, then you actually are allowed to move to the UK and get a two-year working visa. So a lot of Australians will finish high school, they'll go and do university or they'll delay university and they'll head for the UK, get a two-year working visa and then just set up a base in London where they'll earn the British pounds and then they'll use that currency to go traveling throughout Europe and explore the world because, you know, France and Italy and Germany just, just cross the way in Europe there. Or they'll earn British pounds, they'll save it up, and then they'll bring it back to Australia two years later where they will, you know, put down a deposit on a, on a home because, the you know, one British pound can, can get you, um, you know, a few Aussie dollars. So it, it's not actually strange. It's actually quite common, and a lot of Australians do it because it's their opportunity to leave the nest of Australia, to go and see the world, to get out of their comfort zone, to put themselves in a, in a place like London and then, you know, travel down to South America, travel down, you know, to, across Europe and, and, and really explore the world for the first time. And what was it like working in that environment and then moving over to the United States eventually and, and, and working in that environment? Because it seems like, in a sense, as an Australian, you're a foreigner, not in a sense, you are a foreigner in those countries. And I'm curious as to whether you see that as a as an advantage or a disadvantage, and if so, where you know how did that show up in your life? Yeah, in the UK, uh, everyone, all the British locals were so used to having Australians come and invade their country that it was just like blase. Oh yeah, just another Australian. Um, so the idea, the novelty factor for us wasn't as big, but we did we did um, have a reputation of being very good workers, very hard workers. So when I went over there in 1999, I went to Sky Sports, which is the, the British version of Fox Sports, to apply um, for a job as the rugby and cricket editor of skysports.com. And I remember very distinctly going in and being interviewed by the British uh, editor there. And he's like, oh, you're Australian? Oh, that's great. And, um, and at the time, Connor, Australia was pretty much the, the best country in the world at cricket and rugby. And so he was like, oh, you're Australian? Oh, great. Cricket, rugby. Awesome. Yeah, we're going to make you the cricket and rugby editor. Okay, great. Yeah, you're hired. And I was like, okay, that was pretty easy. I didn't even have to fight for it, you know. So just by virtue of the fact that I was Australian and our, and our country was very good at sport, I was hired on the spot by the, by the British editor. Um, four years later when I went to the US, it was harder to get a job because of work visa restrictions, but I was welcomed more by the American community. Like Americans seemed to have a real novelty factor when it came to Australians. And so people were always so embracing of me as an Australian. Oh, oh you're from Australia. Oh my God, that's amazing. Oh, I really want to go there. Oh, I've got a friend in, in Melbourne. They were more inclined to want to help me. In, in the UK, it was less like, oh, I really want to help you. 
Whereas when I got to America, I felt like it was more, I really want to help you. Like, um, and I think maybe it was just the novelty factor uh, a little bit. Nice. It's, it's interesting because like, as I look at, and one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on our podcast is not only because you've done such interesting things in different fields, but I feel like you have so much wisdom. And I, I feel like this is the type of podcast where we could have like a two or three hour conversation, not just about some of the things that you do, but just about your life and your experience, you know, with ESPN and whatnot. But I kind of wanted to shift gears a little bit in and around before we talk about some of the other things in and around, you know, the insider journalism secrets. And because you you've kind of taught people how to interview and how to make money and and I think, you know, how to make money writing specifically. But I think that interview skills are something that, you know, so few people get right. And asking questions is one of the most powerful things that people can do, whether they're looking for a job, whether they're trying to move up in their career, whether they're starting their own business. And so I'm wondering if you can share some insights on your experience of interviewing and maybe some of like the top key things that people need to know, uh, whether it, whether they're trying to hire somebody or whatever the circumstances around interviewing? Yeah, well, I mean, interviewing really is being a master questioner. Uh, and if you can learn the skill of being a master questioner, then all areas of your life will progress exponentially. And by a master questioner, let me give you a bad example. Let's just say you're at a, you're at a party and you're meeting people and someone introduces you and they say, hey, James, this is Connor. Connor, this is James. You go, oh, nice to meet you, Connor. You say, nice to meet you, James. And I say, what do you do? Or you say to me, Connor, oh, what do you do, James? That's a, that's a crap question, <laughs> right? That's a dull question and it, everybody asks it. So now you're being common. It also doesn't ask me anything about me. It just asks me what I do, but maybe what I do doesn't define who I am. So that question's a lazy, lazy question. But if you were in the same, uh, in, instead of asking, you know, what do you do? Instead ask, oh, Connor, what's your story? Well, tell me about yourself. They're great questions because now I'm not, I'm not interested just in what you do as a profession. Now I'm interested in you as a person because you may, if I ask you the question, what's your story? You may then go into a hundred different things which don't involve your job. If you asked me that question, say, what's your story, James? I might say, oh, yeah, I'm, a, I'm Australian. I've been living in the U.S. now for 17 years. I love it. I'm really excited at the moment because I'm, I'm uh, about to go back to Australia to see, my, see my, my family and go to my cousin's wedding, and I can't wait to, to, can't wait to see him. It's going to be awesome. It's, all of a sudden now, that's a, great, that's a great topic, right? That's something awesome that you can relate to because then maybe you start saying something like, oh, that's, that's amazing. I've been to Australia or I went to my cousin's wedding or uh, I'm really excited about this at the moment. You see what I mean? It doesn't just involve what do you do. And so I always try to, when I'm asking people questions, I'm trying to get people to, to talk about experiences and feelings and their story, not their job, not what they do for work. Now, what they do for work might be a great source of passion and excitement, but I'm not asking that question right off the bat as if that's the only thing that's important to me. Right, like it's a networking dinner or something, and like I, I'm genuinely trying to elicit a feeling. I'm trying to extract informing, inf interesting information from you that we can both connect on. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I usually like to ask the question once I've gotten to know the person a little bit better. I usually like to ask the question, tell me something about yourself that you would usually not share at this type of a party. And that usually or like this type of an event or this type of a gathering. And that usually helps people to like open up, you know, and, and talk about something that they're actually interested in or that they're actually wanting to talk about or that they normally wouldn't talk about. So it creates a little bit of a of a vulnerability in there. And I find that in those types of conversations are the really meaningful content because you really get to know someone. Yeah, I think that's great. So with that in mind, James, <laughs> what what is something that you normally wouldn't talk about on this type of podcast? Hmm. The fun fact about James Swanwick. Hmm. What would I what would I talk about? Hmm. Well, I guess you could say I have a business that's called Swanick Sleep, um, and I help people sleep better. We've had a lot of success in the first 14 months of the business, but I guess I, I could share that uh, I'm uh, having uh, not doubts, or, uh, but I'm, I'm questioning my ability to take it to the next level. So I want to take it from a million-dollar business to a $10 million business and then to a $100 million business. And uh, I'm feeling nervous about uh, my ability to be able to, to do that. Now, I absolutely can and I absolutely will, but I'm sharing with you that it's, it's daunting. <laughs> it seems overwhelming. It's, it's like I question myself all the time and I know it's just mental garbage that's coming in. So it's kind of like the fear of not succeeding or it's the fear like I'm not enough. It's the fear that I'm not. I'm not smart enough or I, I'm not or I won't be persistent enough or the fear that, it, that it'll all get too hard and I'll throw in the towel. So I'm feeling a little bit of discomfort uh, around that uh, at the moment. Nice. I appreciate that. Man. I think that some people have the perspective that, you know, really successful people or people that they, you know, have followed for such a long time or people that have uh, done what you've done, they all often look and say, oh, you know what, they must have like this like this champion's mindset and they never had experienced doubt and they never experienced any form of insecurity. And I think it's challenging because people set off on the path to try and achieve something similar, whether whatever that looks like, and they get blocked because they start thinking, oh, I shouldn't be thinking this, you know? And so I feel like it's reassuring for a lot of our listeners out there to hear that even somebody like yourself that's, you know, built all these companies still has doubts every once in a while and still has to battle through that, you know, in order to come out the other side and have success. Yeah. I don't have doubts once in a while. I have doubts all the time, <laughs> like it, like all the time, but I, I've, I've learned to just to, to harness the fear. I've learned to, to work with it. And, and the way I do that is I, I, I say to myself, fuck it. And I just do it anyway. And I take the action anyway. So whenever I'm scared about doing something or I'm fearful, I just say, fuck it. I'm going, I'm, I'm going for it anyway. So I, I, I'll acknowledge that I feel fearful. I'll acknowledge that this is normal. Tony Robbins once said, uh, I heard him say at a, at a Unleash the Power Within seminar that the master of any art expects there to be a plateau. And the plateau may be fear and may be inaction and indecision. And so at that moment, even though I'm fearful, I remind myself, well, you know, the master expects this. The master expects that I'm going to get stuck in my own head and be fearful and maybe like, you know, stuck in, in the headlights. But the master says, fuck it, and then takes action anyway. <laughs> you know, just doing that, just taking the action anyway and just, just moving forward, 
you know, you soon move out of that fearful stage into a new exciting stage and then you're okay again until the next time that you feel fear, which is going to come. It's always going to be there. I mean, I, I don't know anyone who doesn't have fear. I don't know anyone who's completely fearless. I'm sure even people who, who, who we would think of as fearless are not actually fearless. They're probably filled with fear, but they just take action anyway. Yeah, I like that. I like that. And I think that that ties into, you know, that that sort of like doubt and, and fear and whatnot ties into uh, the sleep part of it. I know that anytime that I'm feeling like really full of doubt, or I have like a lot of fears about in my business specifically and what's going on. I find that that sometimes is the most challenging time to sleep. So can you unpack a little bit around what your sleep business is for, for our listeners? I was an okay sleeper, but it wasn't great. So I would, I would still get seven or eight hours sleep, but I'd wake up in the morning feeling a little bit tired still. And I wasn't sure why, because I'm a pretty healthy guy. I eat paleo style. I exercise. And uh, what I realized was that I was exposing myself to too much light at night from staring into my uh, cell phone, from working late on my computer, from brushing my teeth in the kitchen light before I would go to sleep, from lying in bed, scrolling through email on my phone. What those electronic displays have is an artificial blue light. And that artificial blue light, when it hits your eyes, it then triggers your pituitary gland, which prevents your body from creating melatonin. And melatonin is the hormone that we need to fall asleep easily, to sleep deeply, and to wake up feeling nice and refreshed. When I realized that you know, using these electronics was messing with my sleep, I ultimately designed a pair of blue light blocking glasses that I call Swannies by Swanick Sleep. My last name is Swanick. The nickname is Swannies. We've got thousands of customers over the world, around the world now who have who, kind of embraced the nickname of, of Swannies. They're orange lensed blue light blocking glasses, and you wear these glasses about an hour before you go to sleep each night, and the orange lens blocks that artificial blue light from your electronics. Your body's therefore able to create melatonin. You therefore no longer have trouble falling asleep. You don't toss and turn in the night. You sleep uh, deeply, and ultimately you wake up feeling nice and refreshed and uh and feel great throughout throughout the day. So uh, I started that company in November of 2015. You know, people, people's sleep have been transforming all, all over the world. People have been telling us that they've been falling asleep quicker, um, sleeping deeper, and, and generally just feeling better. Well, it sounds like, I mean, you must have your habits kind of dialed in. You know, you've got the 47-day habit hacker, and you've got a couple different companies. So I'm curious as to how you not manage your time, but how you prioritize and what some of your non-negotiable habits are on a daily basis. Because I think that these, you know, we, a lot of people talk about routines. I like to call them rituals because it feels a little bit more aligned for me. But what are some of your daily rituals or routines that are, that are non-negotiable that help you manage everything that you have going on? Yeah, I, I've become a a student of habits, of good habits and bad habits. And, and like you said, I created a program called the 47-Day Habit Hacker, which walks people through all of the, the good habits that I've installed um, from learning from people like Warren Buffett and Tony Robbins and uh, Ty Lopez. I got to meet Arnold Schwarzenegger, Kobe Bryant, people that I've interviewed over the years, Brad Pitt, Tom Cruise. Um, I basically always ask them, you know, what's your number one success habit? What are your, what are your good habits? And 
I collected the best ones and put them all into this 47-day Habit Hacker program. The, the main thing for me, Connor, is when I wake up in the morning, I've created the habit of writing in a journal called Five Minute Journal, and it's a gratitude diary. And it basically asks me a question every day, which is, um, what are three things that you're grateful for today? And what that does is that it just forces you to think about things that you're appreciative about. And that sets you in a positive mood. Now, I'll be honest with you. Most days when I wake up, Connor, the first thoughts that I have as I'm lying in bed are negative ones. I'm not enough. There's too much to do. You, you, um, you're not married and you don't have kids yet. What's wrong with you? Why are you here? Maybe you should be there. Your businesses aren't making enough money. Like all this verbal diarrhea comes into my head. And I, I get depressed for like, first two or three minutes of of every morning. But what I'll do is I'll get up, I'll go to the kitchen table, I'll pull, I've set it up very, very clearly. I'll pull out my five-minute journal, I'll open it up, and it says, what are three things you're grateful for? And I'll write things down. And it could be something as simple as I'm grateful for the bed I slept in last night. I'm grateful that my parents are still alive and healthy. I'm grateful that I get to live in California. I'm grateful for my business. I'm grateful for my brother. I'm grateful for the, the cup of coffee I'm going to drink later on. Just doing that exercise gets me out of that negativity and into positivity, gets me thinking about appreciation versus expectation, and my happiness level increases throughout the day. So that that's definitely the number one habit. Another habit I, I've installed is that I, I prepare my, my exercise clothes the night before, so before I go to sleep each night, I'll, I'll lay out my shorts, my shirt, my shoes, my socks, my water bottle, my backpack, my earbuds, and I'll lay it out uh, in my bedroom. So when I, when I do wake up just before I'm heading to the gratitude diary, I will see those exercise clothes and the visual cue inspires me to put the exercise clothes on. And when I do that, 99% of the time, I, I end up leaving uh, my home and going and exercising versus those days where I haven't prepared my clothes and I'll wake up, I don't see the visual cue, and I'm like, eh, maybe I'll skip the gym today. I don't really feel like it. So just those two habits alone uh, I found have increased my happiness level and also given me a, a very solid routine when it comes to, um, to, to exercise. Nice. I'm, I'm with you on that front. When I want to do the gym in the first thing in the morning, I'll put my – exercise clothes right beside my bed on the floor so that like when I roll out of bed, it's the first thing, like if I'm going to get dressed, that's what I put on in the morning. And then I'm already in my exercise clothes. I have like no excuse not to go. (laughs) Um, So I wanted to shift gears a little bit here because we got to wrap up soon, but uh, I'm interested and I really want to talk about your 30 day no alcohol challenge. And this is something that I, you know, in the past I had done and I'd never heard of other people doing it. And I think that's really, really fascinating. And I know for a lot of guys and a lot of women, doing this type of challenge and just cutting out alcohol can be extremely, extremely confronting for the first little while. And so I'm curious as to, you know, why you created it and some of the benefits that you see people getting out of doing that type of an experience. Yeah. I was a, uh, I was a social drinker for many years until I was about 35 years old. And by social drinker, I meant, I mean, um, you know, I'd have a couple beers uh, midweek. I'd have a couple glasses of wine if I was out to dinner with some friends. 
And then on a Friday or Saturday night, I might drink some more. You know, if I on a Sunday, if I was watching the NFL, my favorite team, the Denver Broncos, I'd go and watch the Broncos, and I might, um, you know, have a few beers. Never really getting drunk or anything like that, but just just drinking, you know, like drinking to relax at the end of a day, having a couple drinks out with friends. Nothing, nothing too huge, right? No big deal. Or so I thought. In uh, 2010. I woke up in uh, uh, in Austin, Texas. I was in a hotel. I was in town for the South by Southwest Festival, and I had a hangover. And I'd only had two drinks the night before. I'd had two Bombay Sapphire gin and tonics the night before. But for whatever reason, on this particular morning, I just felt really, really, you know, hungover. And uh, I looked in the mirror, and I'd put on, uh, I put on some weight. Uh, I looked tired. I looked weathered. I wasn't sleeping well. I just felt kind of like blah. And I just said to myself, you know what, James, I, enough's enough. I think it's time that you took a break off, off the alcohol and let's just run an experiment and see what happens if I quit alcohol for just 30 days. And I didn't intend to stay quit after 30 days. I, always, I intended to just, you know, come back to it. But I quit for 30 days. Uh, and in 30 days, I lost 13 pounds of fat which is pretty incredible just by not drinking alcohol. My skin improved. I looked better. My sleep improved. I was more productive. I started exercising more. And I generally just felt uh, happy, happier and more productive and more clear in thought. And so after 30 days, I went, hmm, I feel pretty damn good. I think I might see if I can go for 40 days. And then I got to 40 days and I was like, huh, I lost another couple pounds. I'm feeling pretty fantastic. Maybe I'll just see if I can go for three months. And then I got to three months and then I said, I wonder if I can go to six months. And then I pushed it out all the way to one year and I was back at the same place in Austin, Texas the next year. And I went to the pub to order a Budweiser to have a celebratory drink after one year of not drinking. And right before I took a sip, I changed my mind. I put it back down and I, and I said to myself, you know what, James, all of the positives that you've got from not drinking far outweigh any temporary pleasure that you think you're going to get from from drinking. So I put the beer down and I haven't literally, I literally have not picked up a drink since. So I have not drunk since 2010. And in that time, my, my body has changed. My romantic relationships uh, have improved dramatically. I've started um, two million dollar businesses. I'm more productive. Life is simply better without alcohol for me. And then subsequently I've created this program called 30 day, no alcohol challenge. Uh, and people who sign up, go to 30 day, no alcohol challenge.com. And I've put thousands of people across the world through that, that program and, uh, people quit for 30 days. And then some people go back to drinking, but at a far reduced rate. Um, and other people stay quit. Amazing. Amazing, man. Well, I, I it's, it's inspiring because I think it's one of those things where so many people, either don't notice it, they just drink every week and they don't really notice the impact that it's having. And I think a lot of people want to want to do something like this. So uh, if you're out there and you're listening that resonates with you, definitely go check that out. Uh, so James, we're going to wrap up, but I have two more questions for you. In the first one, you know, on your podcast, you've interviewed some absolutely incredible people. And just through your time, like even you've, you've interviewed people like Al Gore and Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie, Hugh Hefner, uh, I think you've got some New York Times bestselling authors on there like John Gray and Keith Ferrazzi. But I'm, I'm curious as to, out of all the interviews that you've done, 
Which one was the most inspiring for you personally? <laughs> well, um, there was, I'll tell you what was the most interesting, and then I'll tell you the most, most inspiring. The most interesting was Macaulay Culkin. You know the little kid from the Home Alone movies? Yeah, totally. And I interviewed him at the Sundance Film Festival in 2004 when he was promoting a film called Saved. And it was so interesting because that guy is just a fascinating person. I mean, he was a child star at the age of 10. He divorced his parents when he was 18. He got a, a check for like $20 million on his 18th birthday party. You know, he dated Mila Kunis, who's now, um, you know, I think married to or, or, or in a partnership with Ashton Kutcher, just a really interesting guy and was just so, such, so interesting um, to interview. So that's a peculiar one, but uh, Macaulay Culkin, that was, that, was, that was really fun. In terms of inspiring interview, I would say John Bon Jovi, the rock star John Bon Jovi. Now, I, I've been a, a Bon Jovi fan since I was 12 years old back in 1987 when I went to my first Bon Jovi concert in, at the Brisbane Entertainment Centre in Australia. And on my 35th birthday in 2010, uh, I had the, the, the great pleasure of getting to, to meet and interview John Bon Jovi in person. And so for me, it was a real thrill because I got to ask him all the questions that I dreamed of asking him for, since I'd been a fan for, for all those years. But what I found really inspiring about him is that he's been married to the same woman for almost 30 years. It was his childhood sweetheart. He's got three very healthy kids. He gives to charity. He does what he loves in terms of making music. Um, he's very health health con uh, conscious. He's very articulate and polite and is renowned for having, you know, impeccable manners. And he feels fear but does things anyway. And there's lots to admire ab about that. And I just think, you know, the fact that, that he has been married to the same woman for all those years and he has three kids and and he is a rock star and he is charitable and... He does do what, what he loves to do. That just all around inspires me. So that was the most inspiring interview I've done. Nice. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. Interviewing John Bon Jovi would be <laughs> legendary. That would definitely be up there. Uh, and then my last question for you before we let you go is, is two parts. One, what's up and coming in the future for you that, uh, that people should check out that you're excited about? And secondly, we like to do this thing called man it forward, kind of like pay it forward, but man it forward. And uh, usually ask the guests, if you could recommend anybody to be on this podcast, who would it be and why? So those are the two questions I'll leave you with. Uh, I'm really excited by my sleep company, Swanick Sleep, even though I told you before that I was, you know, had a lot of fear or, the, you know, am I good enough? Can I take it to the next level? I'm still really excited about it. I started it with my youngest brother, Tristan, Tristan Swanick, and uh, that gives me a lot of pleasure doing it with family. You know, seeing customers send me testimonials all the time saying, James, your, your Swanee's glasses com completely transformed my sleep and I'm falling asleep quicker and I'm sleeping deeper. Like that really motivates me to keep going. So I'm loving that. That's terrific. Thank you. Keith Ferrazzi um, uh, is an author. He wrote a book called Never Eat Alone. And uh, um, that book totally transformed my life in terms of teaching me about relationships. So rather than you know, going into each new relationship, asking how can this person help me going into the relationship, thinking, how can I help this person and going and leading with a, with, um, giving rather than taking. And that can, that creates great, um, uh, bonds, great trust, great relationships. And, um, you know, that's, that's completely transformed my life. So yeah, I'd suggest Keith Ferrazzi. 
Incredible. Incredible. Well, thank you so much for your time, James. I know you're a busy guy and uh, we appreciate you coming on the podcast. So thank you so much. Connor, thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate it. And for everybody out there listening to the pod- podcast, thank you very much for joining us for another episode of the Man Talks podcast. If you're interested in checking out more blog posts, podcasts, or the videos from our live events, go to mantalks.com. This is Connor Beaton signing off. We'll catch you next week. Thank you.